I remember I had a toy from the movie Virus as a kid, and I was so excited about it. You too? Yeah. The problem was, like, in the box, it looked like the coolest thing ever. Like, the flesh came off and everything, and I got oh, the you, toy. Oh, you got the guy with the skin that came off? Yeah. That's the one I had. He was awesome. He, he looked so cool in the box, and, like, I, I bugged and begged and begged my parents for him, and eventually, like, they broke down. Like, all right, here you go. And they bought it, and I opened it up, and it had just strong, like, new factory plastic smell that I got, like, sick. So I remember, like, not wanting to play with this toy because it made me feel nauseous. It was like a clockwork orange conditioning, so I would just, like, leave him in places to look like I had lost him. <laughs> like, he was in couch cushions and stuff, just, like, buried. Oh, that poor, skinless robot man. <laughs> oh, but I had the same experience. That was the smelliest toy in my toy box for, like, six months. It was amazingly bad. Like, I couldn't believe how bad that toy smelled. Like, that plastic must have given me mesothelioma. MB and I have been watching that uh, that Netflix documentary series, uh, The Toys That Made Us, and yeah. they talk about Stinkor from Masters of the Universe and how they put <laughs> stink pellets in the plastic. So at the factory, people were just projectilely vomiting all around because of how bad it smelled. I think the same thing happened with that virus. <laughs> Question, were you ever able to get the skin to stay on your horror oh, no. robot? No, it just it slid right off. That's what I love. So for my childhood, I just had human skin independent of the robot. <laughs> it was like two toys in one. As soon as if I ever needed flesh for a scenario I was playing out, I had that. What an odd movie to have affordable toys for, really. Apparently they thought it was going to be like a new horror franchise, and they thought the toys were going to set it off. And they, for some reason, thought Virus was going to be the thing Virus was a big friggin' deal that summer. Those ads were everywhere. I wanted to see it. Yeah, the movie apparently did terrible, but the ads were everywhere. They way oversold it. <laughs> they were trying to capitalize on the success of Event Horizon. I mean, I actually watched uh, Virus a couple months ago, because Screen Factory came out with it on Blu-ray. And yeah, there was no reason that movie ever should have had the budget it did. <laughs> like, there is nothing all that exciting about Virus the film. <laughs> I love whenever weird direct-to-video scripts have all the money in the world thrown at them for no reason. That's how we get Valerian. Right, like, I just, I, I don't understand why Virus was the project that Universal looked at and went, oh yeah, that's a moneymaker. Damn, that came out the same year as Fight Club. Deep Rising came out the year before. Wouldn't that make a great double feature, Deep Rising and Virus? But when you see Deep Rising, can you look at a horrible cyborg man and say, I had an action figure of you. Boy, I wish they had made action figures for Deep Rising. You could get, like, characters that are all dehydrated. <laughs> you drop them back in water so they inflate back up to normal size. Their skin also falls off. It's not terrible. <laughs> it's the same figure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today, we have... And you couldn't see it, I did an impressive, like, arm sweep to motion at people who are not in the room with me, but I'm still introducing. Sagging up on that motion, I'm MB. And I'm Jamie. See, and this is why I like the intros where I surprise you guys that we're doing the show. <laughs> All that prep work and you guys choke up on me. Come on, come on. I'm sorry we didn't bring it for our names, Cody. Anyways... 
On today's episode, we're covering part one of our John Denver 2017 special. That's right, we're covering Free Fire. And no, in the future will we not actually be covering Alien Covenant or Kingsman the Golden Circle. Although, that's a weird amount of John Denver for one year, so I'm a little curious what's going on there. Okay, I just want to get this out of the way. Every time that song played in Free Fire, I immediately thought of the John Denver fondue pot wormhole sketch from Conan and laughed hysterically. And about <laughs> four people at home know what I'm talking about, and they're laughing right now, too. I, I, I know there are more important things to talk about in this movie, but I'm <laughs> seriously hung up about John Denver. 2017 had John Denver like like it was a fucking plague. Big part of Alien Covenant, even the marketing for Alien Covenant featured John Denver. Kingsman, uh, spoilers? One, the movie's bad. You don't really need to bother watching it, even if you like the original. Two, Merlin blows up while singing John Denver, so it's a big part of that movie. And Free Fire, lots of John Denver. It's like in two different scenes, people are getting shot while John Denver majestically croons in the background. And a few years back, we also had The Final Destination, which used John Denver to herald uh, everyone was going to die. For some reason, John Denver and Death are just hand-in-hand buddies. Well, it's like how uh, Belinda Carlisle has just been crushing it in movies over the past five years. Specifically with Heaven as a Place on Earth, but not exclusively limited to Heaven as a Place on Earth, which fascinates me. I just wonder how much John Denver is pulling in from his movie appearances. I'm sure he's probably using like a ton of other movies and I just never noticed. The same goes for CCR. Like they are using every goddamn movie that's a period piece. Well, how else are you going to know that it's Vietnam, Cody? That's the only way you know if CCR starts up. CCR could have made like three songs, just put them out there. People would have grabbed them, use them in every 70s movie, and they wouldn't have had to do anything else for the rest of their lives. They would have just been rich. Oh, if you just have Fortunate Son, you're set for a lot. <laughs> that's, that's all you need. See, the the one that I always associate with Vietnam movies is White Rabbit, because that just inevitably oh, always yeah. plays. So if you just have that, then you, I think your movie is obligated to, even if it's a turn-of-the-century, like, 1900s movie, I think it's required to then turn into a Vietnam movie. I wonder if in Hollywood there's some sort of, like, secret union uh, for period pieces. And if you don't use one of their, like, ten period-appropriate songs, someone comes up and breaks your knees? I feel like the person who would break your knees in this instance is Army Hammer, because good lord is that dude built, like, just... I, I never knew he was that huge. He just towers <laughs> over everyone in this movie. It, you really feel bad for making fun of the idea of Army Hammer as Batman eight years ago, don't you? <laughs> so that's all I can think when I see that guy. It's like, oh, I just... I kind of want to see the world where that happened now. I just, I can, I can only think of the scene where all of a sudden people start shooting at him and calling him a fucking Yeti as he lurches between boxes. <laughs> and that's how his Batman would have been, is just, just the Joker <laughs> calling him a Yeti as he lurched between boxes. <laughs> and the version of the Joker in that movie, in that hypothetical movie, would have been, would have also been played by Jack Rayner. Oh, I'm just imagining Sh- uh, Charlotte Copley as the Joker. Could you imagine? Ah, fucking ha, guys! <laughs> Since next year we're getting, this year, I don't remember one, we're getting a Spider-Man movie that introduces the idea of like a multiverse and possibly multiple Spider-Men. Why can't we have that with Jokers? We'd have 14 different variations of the Joker in one Batman film, and he gets to punch each and every one of them. Cody, we are getting that. It's called that Joker movie that's being produced by Martin Scorsese. <laughs> And Flashpoint, which opens the idea of even more Batmans and Jokers. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put this down now. This is my bet. When they do Flashpoint, Flash will run through the 1970s, and you'll hear a speeded up version of Fortunate Son played very quickly. <laughs> Oh, God, the Flash in Vietnam? That's horrifying. <laughs> I know Fortunate Son, yes. Because he just burns through Vietnam. Oh, I hope he can outrun the napalm. <laughs> he can. Otherwise, they'd have to Flashpoint Flashpoint, and nobody wants that. But we're not here tonight to talk about Flashpoint. We're here to talk about Ben Wheatley's brilliant action movie, Free Fire. An action movie that, honestly, I was thinking about this earlier, I don't know if I'd really classify it as an action movie. Despite the fact that it has a lot of gunfire at play, it has things exploding. Like there, there are things in there that would classify it as an action movie normally. But to me, the, this is a situational comedy almost. <laughs> it's, it's basically yeah, it's basically a murder comedy. It's, it's a murder sitcom. It's a comedy about how nobody dies via one gunshot in this universe. Nobody really can. They have to be pumped full of multiple bullets at several instances. That's the running joke of this entire movie is that every time someone inches closer to ending this random conflict that sprawls out of a simple misunderstanding, they get like two bullets in the leg or they get two bullets in the arms or someone gets like there's a character who gets shot in the head, lives and roids out and rages out and then gets shot in the head again. And all I can think is, like, this is just... I can't consider this an action movie because nobody in this is, like, gun-fu or anything like that. Nobody, Nobody's actually good with a gun in this movie. That's what's kind of amazing. To me, this is... And even going through the bonus material, uh, Wheatley comes out and basically said he was no longer interested in big action movies and he couldn't figure out why they weren't engaging him the same way. Uh, until he kind of went back and thought, how would he do an action movie? And the idea of going very small and trying to bring a little bit more realism into it. He's not trying to make it feel like it's totally 100% realistic, but he wanted a movie where guns aren't super accurate and no one's a Rambo. Uh, you know, if you get shot in the arm, you don't just magically keel over dead. So it's kind of an experimental action film, or maybe a retro throwback in action settings. You know, you don't end up with The Rock coming in, or a gigantic plot about a madman trying to blow up the entire world. It's just a bunch of idiots in a dirty warehouse trying not to die. After a gun deal gone bad because one of the dudes who arrives to the gun deal assaulted the cousin of another dude who just happens to be at the gun deal... A pistol is whipped out, and one bullet is fired, and that causes the entire room to be caught in a two-hour, or nearly two-hour, I forget, I think this is like 90 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's 90 minutes with credits, you know, so 80-some minutes altogether of actual film. But 80-something minutes of just people on the floor, essentially, just yelling curses at each other, firing at the, the people who try to, like, peek their head out, or try to, like... Because at some point, uh, the idea of a phone is introduced, where the phone is kind of the weird MacGuffin of this movie, where they can just call up someone and get some guys down there to kind of fix the situation or get the get an ambulance at some point. Like they're they're even like considering like, okay, we just need to get an e- EMT down here because we got full of so many bullets. But this is a movie that so brilliantly uses the idea of the bottle movie, which is just the idea that. 
this is one location, one situation that just it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and goes to places you would not expect and utilizes some of the best character actors working today. Like, Charlotte Copley in this movie is the best I've seen him since District 9. Oh, this I, role, I'm convinced, was written with him in mind. This is the most Copley Copley has ever Copleyed. Like, he is in it, and also, like, Killian Murphy is in it, actually playing an Irishman for once, which is which was refreshing. Like, Brie Larson is in this, uh, Sam Riley, Michael Smiley is in it. Like, this is an actor's movie where they just shoot each other and are idiots. <laughs> Like even Brie, even Brie Larson is not really that intelligent. She's just kind of going around just being like, like she's smarter than the rest of them. But at the end of the day, she's just kind of trying to do the same thing as them. And every time, it's funny because like every time someone shoots her, they kind of apologize for it, <laughs> but they still shoot her. Well, everybody in this movie, including Brie Larson, is a complete another scumbag. It's like if the cast of Train Spotting all decided to kill each other. And we're just like they had just shot up heroin before they decided to uh, fire the bullets. So, like, they also wouldn't be able to make the shots like this is a movie where nobody is really the protagonist. And yet everybody is equally fat like there are side characters in this that are fascinating to watch and engaging to watch and yet have no redeemable qualities whatsoever because it's just people you don't really people you like but don't necessarily want to see make it out of the movie alive so it's just fun to watch them all like how does this person die how does this person die how does this person presumably live but then you find out they they die too and spoilers, Free Fire dies. <laughs> no. Uh, he was truly the best of us. But, like, this is such an intricately crafted film, and I, I love what Wheatley did with this, which was he took the most simple concept in the world and said, what if things just got crazier? Well, remember when I, when I first saw the trailer, it blew my mind, because that is such a simple idea. Why has nobody ever done a movie that's just one long gunfight? Like, do all the closed quarters character stuff that you'd expect from a director like Wheatley, and then just add guns. What's funny also is, like, this, is, this takes place in the 70s because Ben Wheatley stated that he just didn't want there to be cell phones. And what I love is, like, it adds this layer of style that is essential to the movie, but it's just completely for a plot convenience reason. So for that, you get Shirtlow Copley with this amazing hair and mustache combo, and you get, like, Sam Riley with, like, he's, like, coked up out of his mind, and Jack Rayner, like, has this has these amazing, like, Coke bottle glasses, essentially. An army hammer with the greatest beard I have ever seen on a man. Like, I feel like if I punched that beard, my hand would just disappear. Like, I just pull it back and there'd be a nub. Ah! I think we're forgetting the most important part, which is Killian Murphy's mustache. <laughs> oh, good lord. So, uh, as... There, there's just some actors out there that you just, like, inexplicably root for. 
And there's like I have a friend who will watch anything with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, even his new stuff. For me, I've got a list of actors who I just enjoy, and even though I know they're probably in a bad movie, I'll go watch it anyways. Like Ron Perlman, Joel Egerton, Lee Pace, Oscar Isaac, Jason Clark, but most pertinent to now, Killian Murphy. Like if I see that guy's in something, I'll have to check it out. And seeing the trailers for Free Fire, I figured he was going to be like the first guy shot. Kind of like, you know, even when he's in a Christopher Nolan movie, he's never given a main role. He's always that side guy. I figured this film, he'd be like the serious dude who gets plugged right away, dies, and then all these wacky characters get to go at it for an hour and a half. So it was a very pleasant surprise to find out. And at this point, I kind of disagree with uh, MP's approach to the film. In my mind, Chris is the protagonist of the film. It's an ensemble piece, but he's kind of the through line. He's a very kind of an idealistic guy. I mean, he's fighting with the IRA, so we have to assume he's probably got some sort of uh, political stake in that more so than it's just a job. There's like a, a romanticism there. He immediately is asking out Justine, but he's not hitting on her in the same way as the other characters might be. And in the end, it gets him shot because he doesn't suspect that she'd be trying to screw him over since, you know, he's been trying to get her out of there the entire time. And it's misguided because he should be treating her like everyone else who might be after his blood. So I, I like that idea that the antagonists and protagonists are there, but they're so hidden that you don't necessarily pick up right away that those are the two characters you need to be following and what their relationship is to each other. It's not like he's clearly fighting her and she's clearly fighting him. It's not until you get to the end of the movie you realize Justine really had set this up and he was just in the way, but she's still trying to work against him while he's unknowingly saving the person who's going to screw him over later. I have to disagree with both of you. I think it's very clear that Vernon is the protagonist of this movie. He becomes cardboard Robocop in the third act. I, I want to bring up something that you were, you said earlier in that you feel like this role was written for, with Charlotte Copley, Copley in mind. That's partially true in that it was reworked for him. Originally, Luke Evans was going to play that role. <laughs> Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, they work together in High Rise, so it makes sense. But boy, what a different way that would have gone. Like, no offense to Luke Evans, because I have nothing against him, but like, I can't imagine him pulling off a character as crazy as Copley does in this. Like, Copley just brings in a level of over the top that would make 90s Jim Carrey blush in the best way. I think what I what I texted you immediately after watching it was Copley is just Cobra Commander in this movie. Like he's Skeletor. Yeah, I can actually see him saying I'm not like yelling at the top of his lungs. I'm not nice. <laughs> also, I just found out what my favorite casting for Skeletor in the new <laughs> Masters of the Universe movie is. And can you imagine? <laughs> and meanwhile, like. Like, yeah, I, I, I do see where you're coming from in that the idea that Kelly Murphy is the protagonist, but what I love is that there's also an anti-protagonist in that there's a dude in here who, while everyone is scum, everyone is a terrible person. Like, like from every angle, this is just a bunch of criminals that have pretty much no redeeming qualities to them whatsoever, apart from maybe Kelly and Murphy. Steve-O is the ultra scum of this movie in that he has a crime that is spelled out as having taken place prior to the events of the film that leads to the actual shootout. And he's introduced like having just gotten off a drug bender 
and barely keeping it together the entire movie, even before the shootout happens. He still looks like he's hung over a little bit throughout the entire thing because he's been shot. And I love the fact that that character just gets more and more sleazy as time goes on. I, I, I love how it's so perfect for the tone of this movie that the linchpin of this whole story is just the battle for the soul of Steve-O. <laughs> I, I love the way the characters are lined up as all kind of foils to each other. We have very even odds on Killian Murphy's side and very even odds over on uh, Copley's side. So it seems like that's the main conflict. It's those two fighting each other. But as we get towards the end, like the main dudes from certain sides and their generals have been eliminated or incapacitated, and you realize that's not even quite the conflict. It's not just two sides going head to head. It's partially survival and partially that hidden plot at the end where you realize this was always going to be a hired hit. But... Boy, I like how they just contrast Stevo and uh, Harry so much. Like Stevo is cowardly; he's drug addicted. He doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. He's just in it for himself, and he's doing a shit job about everything. Harry, on the other hand, like he's introduced saying, "Hey, make sure the radio's on. I don't want Vernon to think I'm screwing off." Which is the saddest thing in the world when someone's out to impress Vernon. <laughs> like, just imagine that was your life. You're trying to impress Vern, like, oh boy, you are low on the totem pole. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have Arnie Hammer as reverse Cillian Murphy, which I didn't know was a thing that could exist. <laughs> it's like, I've never seen two actors have opposing energy quite like that, with Arnie Hammer just being a Captain America. Just imagine them being, like, the greatest guys to reinvent the odd couple. And what I love, too, about Arnie Hammer's character, Ord, is that Wheatley says that he didn't want a Rambo type in the movie. Ord flat out never goes down for a majority of the film. Like, he's he's behind stuff, and he's certainly, you know, ducking and covering, but you get the sense that he's not slowed down in the least. Like, he's the least affected by any of the shots he's been given, because he's just so huge. It's a goddamn Yeti. That and he's smart enough to hide while everyone else is actually trying to do stuff. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is, like, he's he's suave and cool, and he he manages to, like, make all the right moves. Like, he's the one person in this that actually kind of knows what they're doing. What I love is if Ord weren't stated, like, five minutes in to be aggressively homophobic, he'd, he'd kind of be the good guy of the movie. Like, you'd root for him. But Wheatley totally throws that in and makes him really unlikable. So you're kind of denied having an action hero to root for? Well, even I, I think he manages to sneak in a lot of little details on these characters to either make them endearing or obnoxious. But uh, with Ord, there's the moment where he announces to everyone while Killian's putting the clip in to the rifle, uh, just so everyone knows, I'm loaded, and he takes his gun out, and everyone just kind of rolls their eyes because it's it's so like by the book and overly showy that it looks like a guy trying to show everyone he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Like, everyone else there is also packing, but they don't bother to present their weapons or anything. He, he's smart, but it also goes to the point where you kind of have to roll your eyes at the guy, too. Which is a nice little touch, just to build up the character make him a little bit more complex. And uh, they don't have a lot of time to do that. The first bullets fly at, like, 29, 30 minutes into the film. So you have, essentially, 30 minutes of kind of a standoff, getting everyone into place, and trying to introduce something like, what are we dealing with, like 10 characters? Yeah, something like that. It's like like eight or nine. So you've you got to get a little bit of detail on all those guys, say their names a couple of times so you recognize them and have some sort of quirk to them so you can pick them out later on. 
it's not a lot of time to do that much character work, because once the bolts start flying, it mostly becomes them having maybe a couple of quips, but nothing that we, you would say is character-defining. So you have to build this universe in 30 minutes. So I have so much respect for what Wheatley's able to do in such a limited amount of time. And when the universe actually gets going, like when the actual gunfight happens and everything's established, I've never seen such a combination of tension and complete lackadaisicalness, where everyone is just kind of going about this in a carefree but really tense manner. Like, it's just handled like it would actually be handled if you weren't scared out of your mind. Like, none of these characters seem to feel a lot of fear. They're just more annoyed that this is the situation they're in, and they know that they have to get out of it because eventually they'll probably die. But they're just more annoyed that they have to deal with the fact that every time they make a move, they get a bullet in them. (laughs) Like, pretty much the only two people in the entire movie that have any sense of loyalty towards each other are Chris and Frank. And I love the fact that Chris and Frank have a relationship to begin with. Like, Frank is Chris's, like, bodyguard, henchman-type dude, slash mentor-type dude, who you kind of get a sense that they have a really long history. And those two are in it to win it, but... They're the only ones that don't seem to have it in them to backstab each other. Everyone else just flat out just goes for the jugular towards everyone else. Well, I don't know. Steve-O's probably too drunk to or messed up to know what he's doing at all. I don't think he has sides. <laughs> I don't think he knows where he is. Probably true. I think my favorite interaction in the film is Chris trying to run to Frank. Someone shoots Chris as he's making that quick run, and he just falls forward face first into the rubble. It cuts to somebody else to have a few lines. It cuts back to Frank. And you just hear him go, you okay? <laughs> and Killian Murphy down in the dust. You just hear, no. <laughs> like, God damn, it's such a funny reading of that line. My favorite reaction, it, like, my favorite thing is when Harry sees Vernon putting on the cardboard armor. And he says, <laughs> hey, I like your cardboard armor. And without missing a beat, Copley just says, with like a sleazy little smirk on his face, it's protection from infection. Yeah. He's flat out just a supervillain in this. It's amazing, but a really inept supervillain. Like, it's not like he's he has any sense of menace to him. He walks into the movie, and you immediately know the guy's a joke. Based off of Copley's, I think, body language, even. Well, and that wonderful description given of him, too, where he was misdiagnosed as a child genius, and now is just an international asshole. Which is just <laughs> the finest way to describe... That type of person. I love how Copley has settled into a nice career being a piece of shit. (laughs) Like, he's become one of those actors, and I love it. To rewind just a little bit to something you were saying before, MB, about how, like, this feels slow-paced, but it still has such high stakes. When I watch this film, I do something I really don't do too often. I finished it, I watched, like, the last 15 minutes just standing up in front of my TV. I wasn't even sitting down, I just stood up and watched it. I finished it, I popped the disc out, restarted it immediately, watched it through all the way, and then, like, the next day, finally went back and listened to the commentary and watched all the special features. But I had to watch it twice in a row, just, like, standing in front of my TV the entire time. I was just so transfixed. And it was amazing to me that a movie where no one can even run, everyone has to crawl their way through the action, can grab you that tightly. It was just... The van scene alone is, like, one of the most gripping things I've seen in a movie in I don't remember how long. Oh, yeah, that... 
that is just an amazing bit of cinema in and of itself, and also just the fact that, again, John Denver... <laughs> it sells the scene. Yeah, it, it definitely sells the scene, and also it just, like... That's one of the best deaths I've ever seen. It's just the truck slowly rolling over. <laughs> Going back and watching the special features on that, too, the how simple it was to pull off practically never would have occurred to me. So they just took the van, and in like the, the special features you can see, it's not the full van, it's just like the shell of it, and they have weight on the opposite side. The tire is just made out of foam, so when they roll it over your face, they can actually roll a van over your head and not crush and kill you. And then they sell the effect later by just cutting to a new angle of the actor on the ground with blood applied to his face, so it looks like his head is popped. Watching that in real time the first time, it looked like in camera all in one moment, it just gave the impression that his head exploded. And I had no idea how they did it, because it definitely didn't look like CGI. And it's Wheatley, so there's always the possibility he just killed that man. Yeah. Wheatley apparently did the stunt himself. Uh, they, they have it on the special features, him like getting on the ground, having them roll the car over his head, <laughs> and talking about how scared he was to do it, but he had to prove a point. <laughs> Ben Wheatley was found dead this morning. <laughs> Crew unsure what happened. Like, I, I love, too, like, there's that scene, and there's also, I don't really want to call it, like, not like the scene in Die Hard where he's, like, going through the ventilation shaft, but, like, a scene that kind of reminded me of that, just in terms of the fact that it's kind of claustrophobic, and it takes place on a stairwell. Oh, yeah. And I don't know how he managed to make a stairwell and a bunch of upper offices seem like the most intense, like, horror movie location ever in just the context of this. Because it's like there's 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 a buildup with this entire stairwell because nobody gets to this stairwell and just goes up it easily. They have to crawl slowly up it. They have to avoid gunfire if someone, like, gets to the bottom. People are like American Gladiator style throwing shit down from the top. Oh, yeah. And then there's a scene where Justine gets to uh, one of the, like, I assume maintenance rooms and just is desperately trying to find a weapon to to fight off Vernon. And then eventually Vernon gets up there and Vernon, his death, good lord, as over the top as he is as a character, like, his death is just one of the more horrifyingly realistic ones, yet still over the top. It's, it's kind of masterful because he ends up burning to death. <laughs> Yeah, it gets all burnt up, and you think that's the end of him. They have that wonderful little twist where he still gets his revenge on Michael Smiley by, you know, blowing him away when he finally gets to the goddamn phone. Charlton Copley's just sitting there all burnt up in his cardboard armor. It's like, God damn it, he had one bullet left in him. And again, he went out like Skeletor. Yeah. Yeah. And he prays. And just going back to the scene you were talking about with with the van, I love how that scene is played up. Towards the beginning of the van taking off whenever Harry gets to it as a victory lap, because you assume that he's escaping the movie and he's the only one that's going to. And that's when the music kicks in and like everything seems like really triumphant and he rolls over the guy and then it just devolves so quickly. <laughs> like there are so many like great moments of triumph that are immediately just completely screwed over. By happenstance, and I, I I love how Wheatley plays around with that, where you you have these, like, even the ending is kind of just that, where the ending is a moment of triumph for Justine, where you feel like she's going to be the one who gets away with the money, and she's, she's going to walk out, and she's going to be the one who lives, but then police sirens, and there's just a, a hold on the back of her head as she just realizes what's happening. Cut to credits. Aha, crime never pays. 
And speaking of Ben Wheatley, we've got to take a moment to talk about this dude, because I have only just recently started delving into his filmography, and oh my god, I I didn't realize that there was a director of this caliber just hiding in plain sight right now. (laughs) It's the amazing thing. The guy has made so many high-quality pictures that he's gotten a reputation, and he can get producers in like Martin Scorsese, and, and he can get all these great actors, but he's not being offered Marvel movies or anything. He's just doing all these great independent films. In every genre. Yeah, and it's so great that he's kind of left alone, and he gets funding to do all these crazy projects. I, I just love the niche he's developed, and I hope he gets to stay there and keep making great products without having to turn in some, like, Terminator 8. In lieu of Free Fire, we very, very briefly talked about doing an episode on High Rise instead, which is a goddamn masterpiece. And Cody brought up the very good point that I don't think we're qualified to talk about High Rise. Because <laughs> that is an undertaking. That is like 2001 A Space Odyssey levels of, okay, I'm going to need a minute. Meanwhile, his other film that came out in 2011, like, the other one that I've heard of, at least, was, like, Kill List. And I still haven't seen it, but it has been on my list of films to see ever since it came out in 2011. And it's, like, I've heard nothing but just it is one of the most subversive, like, great classics that nobody has seen. It's definitely underappreciated. More people should check it out, but it's also not one of those horror films where you go in with a bucket of popcorn and you just have a lot of fun laughs. Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard it described as nothing short of just one of the bleakest things ever. It's yeah, it's pretty goddamn bleak. I love it, but it is not a movie I can watch any given day. Uh, another one, one I'm absolutely in love with and introduced me to Wheatley and got me addicted to his films is A Field in England. And that movie's a trip and a half. It's black and white. It's like English Puritan soldiers who are questing for like stolen magic goods and they basically enter a field that they can't escape and everyone's eating mushrooms and there's a guy who can kind of maybe control parts of nature or maybe he's just freaking out from the drugs and there's maybe magic and the whole thing is trippy as hell i can't do any justice to it by describing it uh i'm sure everything i said sounded like nonsense but i swear it's somewhat close to how things portray themselves in the film it's it's a hell of a thing you gotta see it Okay, I have a theory. Free Fire takes place in the same universe. It's a hallucination one of those characters are having. (laughs) Because isn't Free Fire the ultimate bad trip? I think Smiley is in all these films. I think he's the dreamer. Oh, God, could you imagine taking mushrooms and the trip you go on is fucking high-rise? I saw Tom Hiddleston eating a dog. (laughs) Like That would scar you for life, man. I'm just imagining like a movie verse version of Twin Peaks where your red room is being in free fire. And then when you get shot and you fall down dead, you wake up in kill list. <laughs> and Michael Smiley is there speaking backwards. And there, there's some sort of clue about a smiling bag and you don't understand it. But the, the gum you like is back in style. So it's OK. Yeah. Being trapped in the Ben Wheatley cinematic universe is the worst hell I could ever imagine. <laughs> well, what's what's funny about that is that that would also include two episodes of Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, I, for- I forgot about that. I forgot he directed who. So you would be like one minute you would be in this horror film from 2011, cut to like a field in England, which is this black and white universe where uh, where Puritans live, and then you're in Doctor Who. 
And then you're in free fire, like, and then you're high rise. And I'm just impressed because if you watch his films, they all have such bleakness to them. You'd assume this is some guy who is very much more of like an academic lean and not someone that'd be fun to talk to. But every interview I've seen with him or behind the scenes footage stuff, he's a funny guy. Like he's he's kind of goofing around. He knows what he needs to do. He's not screaming at people. Like he he seems like the kind of person that would be cool to hang out with and talk to. But he also is very exacting in what he gets on film. I, I loved in the, the featurettes on the DVD here, they showed he actually brought out like an editing bay. So while he's filming, he can go and edit the movie together on the spot. So he has that much control. Like he's building the project directly in front of him. He's got hundreds of pages of storyboards and what he's making is going to be that precise. It's not something that he has to save in the edit. It's something that he's got a blueprint. It's so perfectly. It's just going to work out as long as he does his due diligence ahead of time. And th- that much care and concern and the fact that he's, you know, directing it and writing it, I think that control and concern are just producing phenomenal results that you don't see from most other directors. Like, the reason that I originally actually even sought this movie out was because I went on kind of a tear at the end of the year to watch as many movies that interested me from 2017 as I could. And these included films like, you know, War for the Planet of the Apes, Baby Driver... Uh, I rewatched a couple like Wonder Woman and Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, you did 30 in 30 days, didn't you? 31. Yeah, 31. 31 movies, and I watched all of them, uh, including Star Wars The Last Jedi. And whenever I was done with this month, I I went and I ranked all of them just by what I liked and what I didn't like as much. And Free Fire was one of the ones that, because last year was such a good year for movies— I had a really hard time letting that go out of the top 10 because it was that good. And ultimately, I think it actually stayed in the top 10 because it's just a movie that I didn't have much of an expectation for. It was just kind of a it, like I gravitated towards this because of the cast. I didn't really know anything about the director other than the fact that he made a couple of acclaimed films that I had seen. And if you're going into this wanting to watch it for the cast, given the amount of things we've said about People like Killian Murphy and Triple Copley, Michael Smiley and Brie Larson. And the Hammer. Yeah, and Army Hammer. You will not be disappointed by what this does with its actors, but if you're going into this for the premise, you also won't be disappointed. Normally you'd be disappointed by something of what I expect to be on the level with Ben Wheatley's quality in general, because... He's firing on pretty much every possible cylinder with this, and I cannot recommend this movie enough. Free Fire is absolutely a masterclass in how to do a bottle movie, and bottle movies are insanely hard to pull off, especially these days. Like, you have to really, really try hard to be able to get a bottle movie in and make it work in the year 2017 when pretty much every concept you would think has been done. So Free Fire is just one of those where it's just such a breath of fresh air and just such a fun watch that you just want to put it on and have it playing on loop all the time. It's just one of those movies that is just immensely watchable, like kind of like Dread was for 2012. It's that good. It's just a classic in the making. Hey, MB, did you realize about two minutes ago what you said? I'm going to repeat it for you because you did Firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Ah, ah, ah. Ooga, ooga, ooga. (laughs) I hate this stupid podcast. Perfect. 
If you would like to hear more of this stupid podcast, you can find us on Blogspot, boxofficepulp.blogger. I don't know if that's the actual URL. I'm just saying words. It is isn't, Cody. No. It isn't. You just type box office pulp in Blogspot. You'll get there. Uh, boxofficepulp.blogspot.com. Check us out on Twitter at boxofficepulp. Check us out on Facebook slash boxofficepulp. And you can find the corpse of our Tumblr at boxofficepulp at Tumblr. If you try to find us on Instagram, you'll be disappointed because we're not on Instagram. What will we post? Also, check out our sister podcast, Graphic Novelism, which is nothing like this show. They probably don't even have a Tumblr. We definitely don't have an Instagram, but that, that, that may change eventually. And also, oh, they, they, oh, no, no, no. There is a Graphic Novelism Instagram. There's nothing on it. <laughs> but I have the name in case any squatters were after it. <laughs> that is the level of dedication that Graphic Novelism brings to the Fall Podcast Network. Also, listen to the Supergirl Power Hour, hosted by Corey McCreary and our very own Jamie Marshall, <gasps> as well as Pulp Nightmare. If, you, if, you, if you're just not into listening to Cody, but are into listening to the rest of us, then Pulp Nightmare might be your bag. We don't really talk about movies on that, but... We do movie commentaries, though. It's our prime export on Pulp Nightmare these days. It's our prime export. But at the same time, we do do a lot of Vader and Palpatine jokes, so just letting you know forefront. Personally, I recommend the Dreamcatcher episode. I was listening to that the other day. I'm a hoot. And all of the other fine, fine podcasts that come out of the Paul Podcast Network. Anyways, that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Now comes the important part. Seeing if that recorded. And like that, he's gone. I'm going to warn you now, some of these may be kind of strange. <laughs> okay, I did my part. This next one, the box just said fondue wormhole. <laughs> fondue wormhole, I have no idea. Estebani Kala Golda Kutaldo like a night in a forest <laughs> Like the mountains in springtime Like a long If we deploy Gamble's troops east of Willoughby Run, we can hold off the Confederate advance. <laughs> This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? We were really the most shocked people in the world when we discovered that we were these terrible people who were causing juvenile delinquency in America. He talked about a homoerotic relationship between Batman and Robin. He talked about the lesbian tendencies of Wonder Woman. It was preposterous. The Comics Magazine Association of America, Incorporated, has been formed in a code written. But the undesirable comic books haven't disappeared from the newsstands of this country. And the first thing they did was outlaw all the words horror weird every word that i had on any of my titles they sent the book back and said you can't publish this book do we think our children so evil so vicious so simple-minded what are we afraid of mm-hmm.
graphic novelism presents Code Disapproved, a new miniseries coming 2018.